Hello, and welcome to Spotlight on Action, produced by the Healthcare Payment Learning and Action Network, commonly known as the LAN. I'm today's host, Aparna Higgins, LAN Senior Advisor and a Senior Policy Fellow at the Duke Margolis Center for Health Policy. The LAN is committed to transitioning more of our healthcare system away from traditional fee-for-service towards value-based payments and alternative payment models or APMs. The LAN mobilizes payers, providers, purchasers, patients, product manufacturers, policymakers, and others in a shared mission to lower healthcare costs, improve patient experiences and outcomes, reduce barriers to APM participation, and promote shared accountability. Our Spotlight on Action series provides an opportunity to highlight the work of LAN members to effect positive change in our healthcare system. From leading APM adoption to addressing systemic disparities in both access and quality of care, LAN stakeholders are passionate about improving the healthcare system for everyone. Today, I'm very fortunate to be speaking with Health Equity Advisory Team, or HEAT for short, co-chair Dr. Marshall Chin. Under the leadership of Dr. Chin and Ms. Karen Dale, who was a guest on a previous Spotlight on Action episode, the HEAT recently released its first publication, a guidance document entitled Advancing Health Equity Through APMs. The full guidance document is available on the LAN website. Dr. Chin is with me today. Uh, Dr. Chin, welcome to the uh, podcast. Thanks very much, Siparna. For our conversation today, I would like to focus on three critical topics that have also been the focus for the HEAT and were featured at this year's LAN Summit. Those topics are the HEAT and its work with health equity, health equity and APMs, and APM care redesign. But before we jump in and talk about those topics, uh, Dr. Chin, we'd love to hear a little bit more about your background and your research on health equity. Thanks, Aparna. I'm a general internist at the University of Chicago, uh, primary physician. I see patients in the outpatient setting, as well as about a month out of a year, I'm in the hospital attending on the general medicine wards. I do a lot of health disparities research, everything from community-based work to work with fairly qualified health centers, to work that looks at the interaction and communication between clinician and patient, and then a fair amount of policy-oriented research. And besides the work with the HEAT, I co-direct a Robert Wood Johnson Foundation program called Advancing Health Equity, Leading Care, Payment, and Systems Transformation, working with state Medicaid agencies, Medicaid managed care organizations, and frontline healthcare delivery organizations. Oh, thank, thank you for that. Obviously, very distinguished career, and we're excited to be talking with you today. Um, so I want to start off by talking about the, the HEAT's work itself. The HEAT recently released its first publication, a guidance document entitled Advancing Health Equity Through APMs. Um, so as, as co-chair, can you tell us a little bit more about how the document came about and what it hopes to achieve? Over the past three years, Advancing Health Equity has become a much higher priority for the land and CMS. And so land about a year ago created the HEAT, which is a diverse committee of equity experts from many of the different stakeholders. And the job of the HEAT is to help guide the land in its equity work. The guidance document you referred to, Advancing Health Equity Through APMs, 
this provides an overall framework for thinking about equity in APMs, as well as concrete specific recommendations to help different stakeholders advance health equity through payment and care transformation. Great. Uh, looks like there's a lot of um, useful content for, for the larger field. Um, in your view, uh, how do you think the healthcare landscape has changed since the HEAT was launched last year? It's an interesting question, Aparna, but even in the past year, I think you're right that there have been some changes in the healthcare landscape. And one is that first, the idea of disruptive change seems more possible than in the past. Well, oftentimes change incremental, but especially with COVID, we had changes that, that had to occur because of the urgency of COVID. The two examples would be the rapid expansion of telehealth and, and virtual visits, and then the increased scope of practice in many states for advanced practice nursing, as an example, uh, changes that had been uh, unable to occur for many years, uh, but because of the COVID, COVID urgencies, these occurred with uh, a lot of benefits to patients. A second change I would say over the past year is that I think both in our country as a whole, and then specifically within healthcare, there is, is increased recognition of the importance of addressing structural racism and having an anti-racist approach as part of what we do if we really want to advance health equity. I think a lot of people, when they think about racism, they initially think, oh, well, you know, discrimination and what happens between two different people in terms of maybe a bias uh, opinion and all. And there is sort of a, a variety of medical literature suggesting that, that clinicians have implicit bias against people of color. Uh, one example being the undertreatment of pain in, in people of color who come to the emergency department with uh, bone fractures, as an example. But structural racism is, is, uh, is, is different than, than the interpersonal discrimination. It's thinking about all the ways that we have set up our, our system of care, our, our uh, payment policies, our regulations, our rules, our legislation, the ways that things have been set up that whether on purpose or inadvertently have biased against uh, people of color leading to uh, many of the health equity problems we have. So it's important to address both issues, both the, the implicit bias at the individual level and then the structural racism, structural inequities we have built into our systems of care. Okay. Uh, I want to come back and sort of talk about that um, and when we talk more about APMs and their role in health equity. But um, just sticking on this topic of COVID, since you brought that up, um, obviously, you know, it has exposed many of the inequities in our healthcare system. Um, so can you talk a little bit about, um, and you mentioned disruptive change. So can you talk a little bit about how the HEAP can use this data and this, you know, moment that we are all in to further health equity for all populations? As you mentioned, Aparna, this, this is a special moment in our country's history that there is this, this window of opportunity for significant change. Advanced health equity is a matter of will that we actually know a lot about how to advance health equity. But to be frank, advancing health equity simply has not been a high enough priority for our nation as a whole or for those of us in healthcare. There's a famous quote from Martin Luther King Jr. where he said that the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. And again, this is one of those special opportunities we have where that, that movement towards justice, that movement towards equity 
can be faster than, than in the normal era. So your specific question about like data. So data are critical because if we can stratify healthcare quality and outcomes data by social risk factors, such as race, ethnicity, uh, ins insurance status, uh, rural versus urban, uh, gender, sexual gender minorities, a variety of different factors. If we can then stratify those quality and outcomes data, we can identify disparities. And then based upon where those disparities are, we can do a so-called root cause analysis to try to understand in our particular setting, why do these differences by gender or by race ethnicity exist? And then the solutions we have then to address those inequities need to be geared towards addressing those root causes in your particular setting. That every, everything is sort of a context specific that what may be affecting things here in Chicago may be different than North Carolina or, or Washington. So that local root cause analysis has to be done looking at the data and then the intervention is designed to address your local root causes. Okay. Um, if I wanted, to, I wanted to follow up on a couple of points you made here. So one is you talked about um, how we know a lot about how to address health equity, but it hasn't sort of been a top priority for a lot of institutions. Obviously that's changing now, but can you talk a little bit more about some of the other challenges in terms of effective in implementing effective health equity initiatives um, in uh, or through APMs? Mm -hmm. Well, this is one of the reasons why I think that the work of the land and the heat are so promising and exciting. Frankly, money has been a big barrier that right now there isn't a great business case for advancing health equity, that the way the current payment systems are set up really don't have equity as a goal. And so a clinic or a hospital set of providers, well, they're playing by the current rules of the game. Uh, and you know those are the ones that they need to do to, to stay afloat financially. Imagine that we had through like the work of, of the land, uh, APM set up where equity was a specific goal and that organizations were rewarded and incentivized to address equity and doing the right thing, doing these types of care transformations that can effectively address and improve equity were the ones that were supported and rewarded by the current healthcare payment system. Well, then I think we see you know, a, a big, big change because the vast majority of people within healthcare, they want to do the right thing. They want to do well by their patients. They want to do well by their communities, no matter you know, who a patient is. And if they are supported and given the resources and the system is set up in the way that, it, that enables them to do the right thing, I think the vast majority of people and organizations will do that. Okay. Um, so given what you said about, you know, uh... Now it's a priority and making sure that there are the right payment structures to help you know, incentivize people to address health equity. Could you talk a little bit more about you know, the guidance document and, and how the HEAT is um, helping address some of these challenges? So the guidance document tries to both provide a, a big picture framework for everyone, as well as to starting to dive down into details of important areas. And so on, on a big picture level, one might say that it's not just payment reform for payment reform's sake, that you don't want to be like a chicken with his head cut off, just running around and trying things willy-nilly without thinking it through of that. It's payment reform that needs to support and incentivize 
those care transformations that holistically address a patient's medical and social needs to advance health equity. So in some ways, it's this connecting the dot aspect. So uh, the, the document then concentrated upon two initial priority areas. What does care look like that would do that? So you know, what is this good quality care? And so these would be things, for example, that, that um, um, do think about a patient holistically, do address the medical factors and the social factors that impede a patient's best outcome. I mean, any clinician here rapidly learns that, well, you know, we got to address the medical factors and the social factors, otherwise that patient's not going to go as far as they can. Um, and then that um, have a very sort of a patient-centered approach where we are tailoring the care to that individual patient. Uh, and so those, there's a series of, of then principles regarding what makes it then sort of a a patient-centered approach that, that truly will advance uh, uh, health equity. So a culturally uh, uh, competent approach, for example, culturally tailored approach. Mm -hmm. At the same time, besides the care part, the document spends a, a lot of time talking about, well, how should we start thinking about payment? I would think about payment in terms of like, like three major buckets. Uh, one is like, well, what can be done with payment to, again, incentivize advanced health equity? So one can think about value-based payment programs, pay for performance programs that you know, explicitly incentivize, for example, reducing a disparity in outcome between a more and less advantaged group. A second area of payment I would think about is, well, what I would call infrastructure. So one of the, the wonderful things about APMs is that through different type of funding mechanisms, you do have the ability to have upfront money that can then be used to invest in what I would call like infrastructure to to address health equity. And these could be things like uh, team-based care or community health workers, which typically aren't re reimbursed by many, many payment systems, or um, beefing up the, the data uh, uh, systems you have to be able to, for example, screen for social terms of health, to be able to uh, have the data systems to help link to uh, appropriate partners in the community that can help with the social determinants, feedback loops so that the healthcare system then knows what's being done to address that patient's uh, social needs. Uh, those are three examples of some infrastructure. A third element of payment I would highlight is risk adjustment. Um, this had been identified by he as a key issue. Uh, it wasn't dealt with in detail in the current document, although it is the first priority topic as for the HEAT's ongoing work to start exploring uh, risk adjustment. In fact, Aparna, you're one of the experts that he's uh, working with to, to help with this particular area. But the issue being that, on one hand, you don't want to penalize those providers, those health organizations that care for a lot of patients with high social risks. These are often patients that are, have more challenges, are harder to uh, improve their quality of care and outcomes. So you don't want to penalize uh, a provider for taking care of those patients. So probably we need to do something like risk adjusting payment for both a patient's medical and social risk. You know, so that's ongoing work now. Um, at the same time though, we don't want to whitewash disparities. For example, you can imagine that if we don't do risk adjustment appropriately, we could have a situation where, for example, we could risk adjust someone's uh, quality scores and basically whitewash their inequities away. So there are going to be ways to think about payment, care transformation, uh, the flow of money, the incentives in the system, so that we can do both. Uh, both um, not penalizing, in fact, rewarding people for taking care of uh, patients at higher social risk, at the same time that we don't uh, whitewash away the inequities and that we, whatever we do, works towards 
improving the equity, improving the outcomes of those at, at risk. Great. Um, thanks for those uh, insights. Um, I mean, there's obviously many ways in which um, APMs can help, um, you know, reduce disparities and promote health equity. I want to sort of come back to something you mentioned earlier, um, which was uh, the importance of addressing both uh, structural racism as well as interpersonal discrimination. Uh, you've explained many ways in which APMs could help advance health equity, sort of, sort of reflecting back on those two key elements. Um, can you elaborate a little bit more in terms of APM's role in potentially addressing, you know, obviously the interpersonal discrimination, but also any role that it might have in addressing or alleviating to some extent um, structural racism? Yeah, thank you for that important question, Aparna. I'll mention first two, two or three general principles. First, APMs need to be intentional about advancing health equity. Sometimes I hear people say, oh, you know, um, just naturally as we go from fee-for-service to value-based payment or APMs, because APMs and BPP are better models, well, it's going to fix things. Well, no, not necessarily. We can very well have inequities in BBP or APM models. So APMs have to be intentional in their design to advance health equity. Number two is, you know, I would name racism, you know, to name, name calling it as it is, you know. Um, you know, racism exists and we need to discuss it and we need to specifically address it, you know, in, in our, our policies, our laws, the regulations, uh, the ways we structure a APMs. Uh, it's, in some ways, it's, it's like the first step to having that, that discussion, you know, both nationally as well as internally within your organization about, about issues of equity or issues of racism. Uh, a third element is that uh, uh, we need to truly be patient-centered, community-centered, and have the community and patients at the table for these discussions and in the sharing of power as, as we develop and implement these interventions. So, you know, a lot about, about inequities and racism has to do with understanding the lived experience that, um, you know, we have a very sort of divided country right now. And, uh, you know, I think that the only way we have a chance as a country is if we basically have, uh, basically the sharing of stories, the sharing of experience. I think most people are, are, are good people. And, and then when they, they really hear about something in terms of a concrete person who's in front of them, as opposed to an abstract concept, it hits home. And so I think you know, that, that is essentially our only hope, I think, as a country of, of bridging some of these divides of when people truly get to know one another and understand each other's lived experience, um, that's the best hope we have. And so what this means for like an APM or health organization is that, I mean, that's the, that's the point about sort of bringing patients and communities in as, as we are thinking about the problem of advancing health equity and the solutions is understand the lived experience, what the community thinks are gonna be the most likely solutions that will be effective. I mean, who knows the, the problem the best? Well, the community, I mean, they live experience and whatnot. Um, and so those are critical elements of, of the solution. Um, you know, so the, you the point too you raised, this, uh, one more riff here, like um, yeah. the point about like um, implicit bias and all, um, it gets back into discussions that the best training that I have had in terms of when I'm a trainee in this is when there's the opportunity to have the sharing of, of the lived experience. So the, sh the sharing of like your college experience in, in their lives, um, there's things that you, you just have no idea about probably in terms of your colleagues until you have like these, these honest discussions. That to me has been where I have found the most 
Well, my own experience as well, and I think about like the people that um, you know I work with or the wider University of Chicago, it was when there are these, these opportunities to have these transformative shared lived experience discussions, they are hard, they are challenging. These are not easy discussions, they're tough issues, um, but they're the ones that tend to have the most impact in terms of actually changing our behavior in, in our organizations. Great. Um, so you, since you mentioned the University of Chicago and some of your experience there, obviously you're a practicing physician and given your work also leading the RWJF grant that you mentioned earlier, um, are there particular examples from the real world that you can sort of describe in further detail in terms of how, um, you know, the use of multifactorial or multi-component interventions have been used to uh, advance health equity, you know, using APMs and payment, but also some of these other approaches that you mentioned. Yeah, I'll give you two or three examples. So one is uh, for another program I co-direct, this Merck Foundation program called Bridging the Gap. Uh, that program we're working with eight different urban and rural communities to improve diabetes population outcomes. And uh, one of um, our, our most successful uh, teams is uh, West, uh, UPMC Western Maryland. Um, this is a system, health system that's located in the far western part of Maryland. This is the panhandle part of Maryland, which is rural uh, part of Appalachia. And um, as many of uh, the listeners know, um, the state of Maryland has an um, all-payer system where the health organizations are incentivized based upon their total cost of care. So UPMC, um, Western Maryland, they have um, systems very similar to APMs um, where you have um, these total cost incentives mixed with then um, um, quality of care metrics incentives. And so what they have found is that because of the financial incentives and the way that there's flexible payment, they've invested in creating a center for clinical resources where this is a team that uh, uh, anyone can refer their patients to this team, which will do a holistic um, uh, addressing of medical and social needs. And so um, they will do, for example, like a detailed social needs screening. They will do the partnership in, um, uh, with uh, the community organizations that can help with uh, the social needs. And they have found like in this particular example, um, this center, has been able to, for their diabetes patients, um, improve their sugar control as measured by A1C, as well as decrease all-cause um, hospitalizations in this patient population. That's one example. Second example I'll give is that um, oftentimes some of the most exciting work is done at the state level, where there's, um, um, you, have, you know, in the states, you have 50 different states for um, experiments in terms of the Medicaid program. So the states of um, Oregon and Minnesota are two of the states that are uh, uh, most advanced regarding um, the way they have structured APMs and their, their different models um, for advancing health equity. So Oregon, they have something called CCOs, which are essentially ACOs, and they um, basically incentivize equity. They have uh, flexible payment um, um, uh, mechanisms to be able to more flexibly use money to address medical and social needs. Uh, Minnesota, they explicitly call out racism and um, in their Medicare contracts are looking at ways to um, ward those uh, managed organizations that are doing serious efforts to address racism, address equity. Third example I'll give is, um, again, from our Bridge in the Gap program, there's a fairly qualified health center in Washington, DC, um, named La Clinica, that works with uh, mostly an immigrant El Salvadoran population that have a complicated set of medical and social needs. 
So they are incredible in terms of the, the way they partner with their um, local um, uh, community agencies to address the medical and the social. Um, one of their partners, for example, um, is a medical legal organization that um, helps with some of the um, immigrant um, legal issues, as an example. It's an example of a, an organization that um, their payment structure doesn't do a great job in terms of you know, supporting medical and social. So what they have to do is they're just incredibly good at getting 20 plus grants this year to cover the social part. But it's an example, I put it out because it's an example of a model where APMs could support this model uh, in mm -hmm. terms of advanced equity, having the holistic uh, view of addressing the medical and social to improve the health outcomes, decrease costs and whatnot. So those, so it can be done. There are some uh, great organizations out there. Yeah. Well, you, you highlighted three very um, great examples. Um, obviously, uh, room for improvement with the one in DC in terms of giving them more payment support, um, I guess. But, uh, you, you know, from your perspective and based on your experience, how, how do you think we can kind of replicate this kind of success nationwide? For us, I think to tackle health equity and reduce disparities would require scaling and more broad scale adoption of these kinds of models. So can you talk a little bit about what, what would need to happen? Yeah, you know, so on one hand, I mean, it's not rocket science. I mean, this is not like, you know, like nuclear physics here. And as I mentioned a little bit earlier that there are all these demonstration programs. We know a lot of the principles of what it takes to advance health equity. So it does come back to what we talked a little bit earlier that first is will that, you know, you could, you could have wonderful ideas and plans regarding your payment and your care transformation and all, but Frankly, if there's not a will, both within your individual organization as well as at the state and national level, to create basically, you know, um, the payment regulations and all that support all this, well, you know, it ain't going to go very far. So the will is incredibly important. Um, you know, the point about it all has to be contextualized to your local context. So, on one hand, there isn't really sort of like, oh, just take these off-the-shelf solutions and plug and play. Yeah, there are all these good models, but ultimately you, you have to do, you know, the, the thing like looking at your own data, uh, doing the root cause analysis in conjunction with your pa patients and partners to identify in your particular setting, what are the specific drivers of the um, disparities? And then the solutions, again, need to be addressed, address what is your local issues. So, um, you know, that's a generic approach. But again, when it comes down to it, the things that work are fairly generic. So things, these are things, for example, like um, team-based care, you know, mm -hmm. things that involve um, close personal relationships with, with patients, close following and monitoring of patients. So that's, that's why team-based care oftentimes works, that you have a team that, you know, can do all the handoffs. So someone will see them in the clinic, someone will do the telephone, you know, calls to home and someone will do home visits, you know, so uh, all that's involved culturally tailored approaches better than generic one-size-fits-all approaches, not surprisingly involving the patients and the communities and the solutions, um, multi-factorial approaches from almost all the inequities. It's not, it's not just one thing that causes it. It's like, you know, there may be a, a whole host of things, but maybe there's three or four, you know, really important ones that you, you start with. Um, so those are some examples of like some of the general principles that, that apply. But again, it has to be tailored to one's own particular uh, uh, situation and all. So that's why in some ways it's a process, not just a, you know, take this solution off the shelf and plug it in. Yeah. Um, no, that's really helpful. Um, I guess, you know, you're, you're talked about some of the lessons that's, that have been learned from some of these uh, demonstration programs um, and how they've helped address health equity. Um, earlier, you talked about how the, you know, the COVID, you know, forced us to make some changes very rapidly, right? You talked about disruptive change in terms of telehealth and 
um, scope of practice laws and, and, and so forth. Um, what do you think are some of the lessons learned from the experience with this pandemic that you would like to see incorporated into APM design? Yeah, it's a wonderful question, Aparna. Well, I point out maybe four, four lessons we learned from the pandemic. So one is that, that uh, we need to be intentional about designing our solutions to advance health equity. So I, I think we found, for example, like, like uh, the rollout of the COVID vaccine, where equity, frankly, was not prioritized highly enough. We had the national guidelines that, that um, um, didn't lead to an adequate uh, allocation of, of vaccines or systems and processes to get vaccines uh, equitably in the community. Mm -hmm. So the point being that we need to intentionally design APMs to advance health equity. It goes along the line with the APM's vision regarding its role in population health, um, the ethics of, of serving the community, and the social justice imperative we've seen with, with COVID and in general with, with healthcare. A second lesson from the pandemic is that we need to address social deterrence of health. Um, oftentimes, the medical parts of, of, of the problem are the easier problems to, to, to face, as opposed to some of the social terms of health we found, like for COVID, and the need to um, think about uh, a patient holistically uh, in terms of uh, um, their medical issues, their economic issues, um, their health beliefs, if we're going to, in this case, for example, um, get communities vaccinated. A third is behavioral, and so that um, any of the clinicians here know that behavioral issues are such a heavy component of, of many of the patients we see. You know, there's this famous quote from Francis Collins, the most recent NIH director, which some people may not have heard of yet, where he said that someone who's asked, well, now that you've finished your term as NIH director, is there anything you wish you would have done differently? And one of the first things he said was that, uh, well, you know, I really wish I had put more money into the behavioral science research. You know, and I think it was coming from his perspective and having to deal with COVID and seeing, well, all this vaccine hesitancy and all. Mm -hmm. And, you know, again, like any clinician will say, well, yeah, thanks, thanks for coming to the club a little bit late. But great that he came to that recognition that, um, you know, again, what any clinician or person sees right off the bat, behavioral issues, just such an important part of overall health. The last thing I'll mention again is, is um, we learned from the pandemic that uh, racism is a big issue. And so we mm -hmm. need to have an explicit anti-racism lens as we think about some of the equity issues within APMs and nationally. Um, I wanna pick up on something you said, which is you know, the importance of addressing social risk factors, um, right? Ensuring you know, uh, transportation, housing, um, you know, access to nutritious food and, and so forth. Um, uh, as a practicing clinician, like what has been your experience, you know, incorporating you know, those factors into, your, into care, whether either you as a practicing clinician or within you know, University of Chicago health system, what are some things that have worked and what are some of the ongoing challenges? Mm -hmm. So when you hear this term social terms of health, I would think about it on two levels. So one is the individual level. So in other words, so I was in clinic yesterday. And so then I'm seeing, you know, my, my nine morning patients, you know, what, which patients have particular social needs that uh, are issues that we need to address. So it's the individual level, individual patient. The second level is more the systems and the structure. So there are social terms of health in the community that are driving health inequities. So things like um, you know, poverty or poor housing or inadequate education or criminal injustice and whatnot. Um, and so as a clinician, 
I think there's a, a role for us on the two levels. So clearly, like, so for example, like at the University of Chicago, we now have within like our um, EMR, there's a, a social needs screening tool that is used. And we also have now, um, we're working with um, NowPow. This is one of the, uh, uh, there's like a half dozen of these different uh, companies that um, help then take social uh, needs screening data and then determine well in the patient's um, neighborhoods, what are the, uh, the relevant uh, social service agencies or resources that would help address that, that housing issue or that food insecurity issue. And then there are the feedback loops of then, um, then that agency then feeding back information back to the healthcare system. So we know what's happening in terms of that, their holistic care and all. At the same time, like some of this uh, is where like, it's not, it shouldn't just be the clinician that does this. And so here's where then like the clinic, the overall hospital, the overall integrated delivery system, um, you know, needs to do their part in terms of creating, help creating that system, you know, that data system or help creating that team that can, can do that bridge the community and whatnot or that health system can, you know, work in terms of then like um, uh, in this negotiations then with like um, the payers or the state uh, regarding uh, creating the funding streams for this necessary work. It shouldn't just be the clinician. And that's what, you know, burns clinicians out and at least the frustration. So, um, you know, I think there are plenty of things that we can do at all different levels, whether individual, organizational, policy level to create that, that integrated system of care that can look at people as individuals and communities as the systems, and then address then both the individual and systemic structural social terms of health. Um, so just sort of looking ahead to the future, um, how different do you think, you know, care will be in the next, you know, one to five years, if you were to look into your crystal ball? Yeah, great question. Uh, I'll point out three different trends, which I think are, are, are already happening and I think will accelerate. So one is this move from still a predominantly medically oriented healthcare system to one that thinks about patients truly in a more holistic way as people that have medical and social issues and as individuals who also live within communities. So in uh, APMs, I think it'll be part of that, that, that trend also. A second general trend is a shift from a predominantly inpatient-based healthcare system to one that increasingly shifts care to the home in virtual settings. And we saw this with telehealth, of the value of telehealth. And uh, you know, we need to do more about shifting things out of the hospital. We can probably be more efficient in terms of the mix of what can be, needs to be done in the clinic setting in person and what can be done by uh, virtually in all or by home setting. So that's an exciting shift. A third shift I would say is that we're gonna see over time, just increasing amounts of real time health data and social data available. And now then with advances in machine learning, artificial intelligence, we should have faster ways to process, analyze, and then respond to these real time data with systems we'll need to create to be able to handle this data and then to then respond in terms of how it interacts then with the patients. It's all very, very exciting trends. I would say though that all of these have potential to advance health equity, health equity if we address them appropriately, but all of these three trends also could exacerbate inequities if we don't basically be intentional about designing our systems to address equity issues. 
Um, I know we've covered a lot of ground today. Is there anything else that we didn't cover that you would like to take a few minutes to address? Yeah, I just like to harken back to what we talked about at the beginning of Parna of how this is really a special time in our country. We, we had a lot of challenges and there's a lot of uh, threats to our country uh, and our democracy. At the same time, there is one of these opportunities for transformative change, I believe, in our healthcare sector generally and specifically for advancing health equity. This will require both local leadership. So I know that many of our listeners are uh, leaders in your own organizations. So it will require local leadership. And it's much easier for us as local leaders if this wind behind our sails at the state or national level. So for example, national efforts like the LAN or some of the CMS's new efforts regarding equity or the work of the heat, all have tremendous potential because they can be so synergistic and to support the local leadership with what they want to do anyway in terms of providing the best quality care to advance health equity. So there is a tremendous opportunity for the land and CMS here. And so I urge everyone to work both locally as well as nationally, such as through the land, to advance and synergize our efforts regarding health equity. I am optimistic about our chances of significantly advancing health equity over the next few years. I, I'm sort of on one more more like grass, glass half full as opposed to glass have empty people, have empty, empty people that mm -hmm. um, some people talk about how policy and, and healthcare transformation, some of it is just serendipity and when there are these windows of opportunity. We got one right now. Let's just like just launch ourselves this window and I think we can do a lot. Great. Well, uh, unfortunately we ran out of time, but I look forward to having a conversation with you down the road to see if you know some of the trends and things that you talked about you know, come to fruition, having another conversation with you in terms of our progress towards, you know, um, advancing health equity. Uh, Dr. Chin, thank you so much for joining us today for such an enlightening conversation. Your insight and perspective on these issues has been very informative. Thank you very much, Parna, for the great conversation. And thank you so much for your work with the land on working to advance health equity. For all of you listening, thank you for joining us for another insightful Spotlight on Action episode. If you enjoyed this conversation, please keep checking the LAN website for more from our Spotlight on Action series, highlighting the LAN's work to advance value-based care. This and future Spotlights will also be posted on our social media accounts, so be sure to follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at payment underscore network and on LinkedIn by searching for the healthcare payment learning and action network.